We're continuing our sermon series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, Our passage that we're looking at this morning, Proverbs 7, uh, is printed for you in the worship guide. This is the fifth week of a nine-week series on the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And if you remember, Proverbs is one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Wisdom in the Bible is concerned with helping us navigate life. It's focused on the practical life. The goal is to help us to flourish in the everyday stuff of life. As I've been saying, Proverbs helps increase our street smarts. Think about it this way. Proverbs, over these nine weeks, is our tour guide of life. Along the way, Proverbs is pointing out what is real and true in the world of people, places, and things. What we're doing is we're walking through some of the primary themes of Proverbs. So far, we've covered wisdom, folly, justice, and money. Our topic this morning is temptation, and then in the weeks to follow, we are going to look at speech, work, and relationships and plans. Like I said, our topic this morning is temptation. I don't know what thoughts come into your mind when you hear that word, But before I read the passage of Scripture for us, I want to uh, set a little bit of context by referring back to a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, uh, our topic was folly, and we looked at Proverbs Proverbs chapter 9 and two distinct voices from that chapter. The voice of wisdom personified as Lady Wisdom, and then the voice of folly personified as Lady Folly. The reason that I bring these up again is because those exact names are not uh, used in this chapter, but the dynamics are still in play. The voice of wisdom personified as Lady Wisdom and the voice of folly personified as Lady Folly. You'll hear it as I read. Let me uh, read the passage for us, and then we'll get into it. Remember, Proverbs, in large part, is a a, a father speaking to a son, uh, giving him wisdom and instruction for life. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom... You are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with, from Egyptian linen. I have perform, perfumed my bed 
with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. A full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And her smooth talk, she compel, with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes in to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for God's help. Holy Spirit, teach us from your word. Teach us wisdom that we might live wisely and experience abundant life in Jesus. Amen. Like I said, I don't know what comes to mind, what you think of, how you feel when you hear this word temptation. I'm guessing that for most of you, if not all of you, what comes into your mind is not positive. (laughs) Maybe what comes into your mind is the very thing that you're feeling most tempted by in this season of life. Or maybe what you're thinking and feeling is how dreadful this topic of temptation is, because you feel like whenever you're tempted, you give in, you fail, and it makes you feel miserable, guilty, and shamed. Maybe as you hear this word, you think very negatively about the Bible. Yep, that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible's always talking about what not to do. The Bible is a killjoy, trying to keep us in place from really being able to enjoy life. And I'm sure there are some other thoughts and and feelings that are represented in this room as well. Well, as we come to this topic this morning, my hope is that you experience it, see it more holistically as the Bible talks about it, because the Bible talks a lot about temptation. That should encourage us. It should be meaningful to us because we deal with temptation every day, don't we? Every day throughout the day, we're constantly facing various temptations. And so as we look into this passage, I want to look at it in two ways. First, I want to talk about the warning of the passage and then the way out that the passage offers us. So the warning of temptation and the way out of temptation. The middle section of this passage, verses 6 through 23, is about a man who willingly allows himself to be entrapped by the adulteress. Now, obviously, the specific temptation in view here is that of adultery. But this sermon is not about adultery. It is about temptation more generally, and the dynamics uh, that we find in this text that are applied specifically to adultery also apply to temptation more generally. So that's how we're going to uh, work with the text. The father shares with his son what he has observed through his window. This isn't the first time that the father has spoken to 
his son in the book of Proverbs. Um, this is the way that the book of Proverbs is constructed. It's uh, as advice, instruction, wisdom given from a father to a son. And the father here is basically taking this posture of, son, let me tell you what I've seen, observed about people, places, and things as I have looked through the window of my home. The son, as we get to know him, is simple. Simple meaning that he's naive, he's gullible, he's easily deceived. If you remember our our first sermon in this series, we talked about some of these categories of people that we encounter in Proverbs. And the simple is one of those categories, somebody who is naive, gullible, and easily deceived. As we get into this text, what I want you to realize is that we don't usually find ourselves in the midst of temptation immediately. That sometimes happens. Sometimes um, we just find ourselves very suddenly in these moments of crisis where we are confronted and faced with temptation. That does happen, but that is not generally the case. Temptation is typically something that we wander into. It's something that we wander into through a series of choices, a series of decisions, or sometimes, and you're going to know what I'm talking about, you don't wander into temptation, you run into temptation. Verse 8 and verse 9, I want you to take a look at those verses. The father is telling the son about what he sees through his window, and he is talking about Lady Folly, represented in this passage, personified in this passage as the adulteress. And in verses 8 and 9, we're told about how he passes along the street near her corner. He takes the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. In other words, it's the wrong place and the wrong time. The wrong place and the wrong time. So this person being spoken of here in the Proverbs, who eventually, um, as we keep going through the chapter, ends up giving into temptation, does not find himself suddenly, immediately faced with temptation. He's made choices, decisions along the way. He's been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Does that resonate with you at all? Maybe even in the past week, where have you found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time through a series of poor decisions? Lady Folly, Proverbs chapter 9, uh, verses 13 through 18. That was that sermon a few weeks ago about folly. Uh, We learn about Lady Folly in comparison or in contrast to Lady Wisdom. Lady Folly is loud. She's boisterous. She's wayward. She's in the street, in the marketplace. She embodies a deceptive heart. We encounter Lady Folly doing these very things here in this chapter. In the marketplace, in the street, loud, boisterous, offering words of enticement. Again, she offers, she embodies a deceptive heart. Cornelius Plantinga is a theologian, and he says this, Sin 
is a fearfully powerful spoiler of the good. Sin is a fearfully powerful spoiler of the good. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom, it vandalizes it. What's the point? The point is, is that so often sin, evil, good, righteousness, they're, they're, they're so closely related. As Cornelius Plantingus says, sin is a powerful spoiler of the good. So, so often when we encounter sin, it's been a parasite on what is good. And what I'm getting at here in the passage is that Lady Folly, what does she offer? She offers words of enticement, words of intimacy, words of love. But it is not what it seems. That is her promise. She entices with intimacy, convincing, if you look in verses 15 through 18, that this one, this man, is something special. In other words, her enticements are seeking to name him, to define him, to offer him intimacy. It's what we all want. Men, women, children, it's what we all want. We want intimacy. We want communion. We want to know and feel that we are deeply loved. We want someone to name us because we are not comfortable with the names that we give ourselves. She mentions having gone to make an offering that day. It's a reference to the peace offering, and probably what this is communicating is that she has meat back at home, which in ancient times was a luxury item. And the peace offering that's most likely being referred to here was intended to foster communion with God. But here it's being, uh, it's being manipulated. It's being spoiled to offer intimacy of another kind. But again, what underlies all of this? It's an offer, an invitation to intimacy. And ultimately, this one gives in to the temptation. We all long, like I said, for this intimacy and communion. We long to be named by others, to, told that we're, to be told that we're something special. In verse 21, her talk is smooth but deceitful. Again, it is not what it seems. We have all experienced this. In our search, in our lookout for intimacy, for communion, we have gone down paths that we should have never gone down. We've uh, sought things out that we should have never sought out. We've ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time, again, because of unwise decisions and choices. But what drove so many of these choices was the longing for intimacy and love. And when we finally arrived at the source of our temptation and we partook, it may have been enjoyable for a time. But when we walked away, we walked away with a bad taste in our mouths. Why? 
because it was not what it seemed. It was not what it promised. And we end up in a worse situation because now we feel guilt, we feel shame, we've brought harm to ourselves, maybe to another person or multiple people, and now we have to begin living with the consequences of our decisions. That's why at the end here, uh, the, the father speaking to his son talks about the ruin. If, if you look to the side, you see all of those who have been laid to waste through giving in to the temptations of life. It ultimately, ultimately leads to death. And this is what's so confusing. This is what's so manipulating about it. This is how sin is such a spoiler of good because so often the, the temptation that we see it looks so attractive. It looks like life. And then we give ourselves to it, and it's death. It's death. It isn't what it seems. We have to discern what is real and what is not. This is what is so hard about living wisely in the world. This process of discerning what is real, what is true, and what is not real, and what is false. Here we find the son giving into the temptation, being wrong about what is true and real, thinking that if he gives himself to the adulteress, that he will find life, that the love and intimacy that he longs for will be met. And again, I, I want to be clear about something because I could say something unwise and wrong, and that would be that every time you give in to temptation, it feels like crap immediately. It's not how it works. That's the trap of temptation. Remember, evil, sin, is a spoiler of the good. So there's much evil that we give ourselves to that for a time feels good, feels attractive. It feels like life, but it eventually catches up to us. And its true character shows itself. The danger, the warning, uh, the warning about the dangers of temptation. This is what we find here in this text. Now, I want to come back to something that I said as I uh, introduced the text. It's easy to think that the Bible is ultra-negative, that it's always telling us about what not to do, that it's trying to keep us in our place, trying to kill our joy. Ironically, the Bible actually is about the exact opposite. Through Scripture, God's Word, God is, first of all, revealing himself to us, but second of all, revealing to us what is true about the world, true of people, places, and things. God wants us to flourish God wants us to have abundant life. And so God is not afraid, even though it's going to bother us, even though it's going to irk us, God is not afraid to tell us what is right and wrong. God is not afraid to warn us of the dangers that are out there because God loves us so deeply. God tells us about the boundaries, that if you go outside of these boundaries, you're going to bring harm and ruin upon yourself and others. Don't do it. Hear my voice. It's not arbitrary, it's rooted in shalom, rooted in the way things ought to be, and ultimately it's rooted in love. We were made for love, intimacy, and communion with God. We were made to be named by God. 
to be told by God that we're something special and to live in light of that with an identity that he gives us. And so what actually irks you, what bothers you, is actually God's love for you. I don't want to be told what to do and what not to do either. I don't like it. I like to determine the rules for myself. But God being willing to break through that, even though we're going to get mad at him and upset with him, is actually an act of love. He doesn't just warn us about temptation in this passage. He also shows us the way out. And we see this most especially in the first few verses of the chapter. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. In other words, the way out of temptation begins with taking the words of wisdom to heart. The father's appeal for the son to take wise instruction to heart is really what these first four verses of the chapter are all about. Did you hear that word sister? He's saying, relate to wisdom as your dear companion. Bind yourself to wisdom. Allow wisdom to name you. Find intimacy and love in God's wisdom. Interestingly, the way that this father is speaking to the son here in Proverbs is how God speaks to his people throughout Scripture. But one particular passage um, came to mind for me. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why does God tell us this? Why does he tell us to listen to his word, to walk in his ways? Love. Where did the passage begin? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's rooted in love. And so the best advice is useless unless it's taken to heart and translated into actual living. And that's what this father wants for his son, and that's what God wants for all of us, his children, that we would hear and that we would take, apply to our hearts, and translate it into the habits of living. And here's a, a really important point. Um, I don't have my worship guide up here, and I need a quote from it. There's a reflection quote, the beginning of the guide from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, temptations which accompany the working day will be conquered on the basis of the morning breakthrough to God. 
Decisions demanded by work become easier and simpler when they are made not in the fear of men, but only in the sight of God. He wants to give us today the power which we need for our work. Focusing on that first line, temptations which accompany the working day will be conquered on the basis of the morning breakthrough to God. So often when we think about our moments of temptation, our crises of temptation, we try to imagine ourselves in the situation. We, we project ourselves in the situation. And here's what we do. If you're like me, all right, the next time I'm in that situation, I am not going to give in. Not next time. It's going to be different next time. I'm not going to do it. I can imagine. I can see it clearly. And then guess what happens? I find myself in that moment of temptation, and I find myself giving in yet again. Now, the temptations of life are varied. Some temptations are more personal. Others are more public. Um, Some, the consequences uh, of giving into the temptation are greater than others. Um, One example of temptation, which actually caught me off guard this past week, probably because I was I knew I was going to be preaching on the topic of temptation. I was at a conference. Uh, Katie and I were at a conference this past week. And as part of the conference, we actually went to the Freedom Center in downtown Cincinnati. Um, And the Freedom Center is a museum which tells the story of slavery in history, particularly the the, the story of uh, the slavery of African-Americans in our country, but also the story of modern-day slavery that is still happening throughout the world, and it was heavy. Now, museums are typically more quiet places, but as we walked through um, this museum with other pastors and ministry leaders, it was deathly quiet. It was so heavy, so weighty, and I found myself at different times wanting to run, wanting to get out of there because I could not handle what was before me. And when I think of injustices in the world, when I'm confronted with injustices of the world, so often it just seems so heavy and weighty for me, and I want to run. I just want to be comfortable and do nothing. That's one temptation. But there are all kinds of temptations. We know that. There are sexual temptations. There are power temptations for more power, to misuse power, and so on and so forth. But here in this passage, and connecting back to the Bonhoeffer quote, as we think about ourselves in those moments of temptation and how we're going to react and respond differently, that's foolish to a degree. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that you should project yourself in that situation, imagine yourself giving in to the temptation, definitely not saying that, but if that's all you're doing, if your source of power, if your, your way out is simply to imagine yourself in the situation of the temptation in the future, if that's all you got, it's not enough. It's not enough. Because the moment of temptation is always far more overwhelming than when we're considering it outside of the moment. Right? That's the folly of it. It always... It's so easy for me to think about a multitude of temptations in my life right now and to say, all right, when I get in that moment, no, I'm not giving in. But when I'm in that moment, man, it is overwhelming. And so the point is this. How do you respond to temptation? 
how, how do you become a person that doesn't give in to temptation? The answer, simply put, is training. Training. It's far more about what you do outside of the moment of temptation than what you do in the moment of temptation. If you want to become a person who resists temptation in those moments of life, you have to become a, you have to be becoming a certain kind of person for that moment. That's what Bonhoeffer is saying. Temptations which accompany us in the working day will be conquered on the morning breakthrough with God. In other words, growing in intimacy and communion and love with God. Loving his wisdom, his word, and seeking to apply it to our lives. Remember what we said in the first week of this series, wise people make wise decisions. And so think less about how you're going to make a wise decision in that moment of temptation and focus more on how you are becoming a wise person right now who will better better handle those moments of temptation. I see this in my life without fail. It doesn't mean that I never give in to temptation. Of course, it doesn't mean that. That's, I'm not saying that um, if we take this approach, then we will never uh, give in to temptation, but we will give in to temptation less. But I see this without fail in my life, that when I'm walking in intimacy with God, when I am sensing that I have his deep love, that he gives me all the intimacy that, that I need, that he names me, I, and I'm growing in this, and, and I'm immersed in his word and um, wanting to know his wisdom and apply it to life, I'm becoming a certain kind of person. And in those moments of temptation, not always, but you know, it, it definitely changes things, I'm able in those moments to say, I, I don't need love or intimacy there. I, I don't need to go down that road. And remember, the road, the, the road to temptation is so often a road or a path. And so we back up and we begin making wiser decisions. We, don't, we end up less in the wrong place at the wrong time. You see how this is multifaceted and, and, and holistic. And so take the words of wisdom to heart. Run into God's heart for you and for his desire to see you flourish. This fi- the final section here, verses 24 through 26, it's now the father speaking to multiple sons. And his challenge to them is to learn that wisdom includes keeping off the paths, like we said, that lead to temptation and ruin. Biblical wisdom is concerned with character and experience. It's concerned with the kinds of people that we are becoming. Wise people make wise decisions and judgments. It's also interesting where it ends as well. It ends with a warning to consider the consequences. Now, it sounds like I'm going back into the warning. We were into the way out, but this actually too is a way out. To be people who reflect, to be people who give thought to decisions um, in life, to be people who slow down enough to be able to analyze, all right, if, if I make this decision, if I give in here, where will this potentially lead me? And what will the consequences be? Be on guard about consequences. Consider the ruin that will come to us through giving into temptation. That by itself is not enough for the way out of temptation, but it's part of it. To be people who slow down enough to give thought and consideration 
to the consequences of decisions. I know for myself, what can get me into trouble is I'm going way too fast in life, too busy. I don't slow down, and I'm just making decisions on the fly. We have to slow down for wisdom. All right, I want to end by pointing out the most powerful way to get out of the danger of temptation. And I want to point you ahead in the biblical story to the Gospel of Luke. You can turn there um, if you want to. It's not printed in the worship guide. But the passage is found in Luke chapter 3, I believe. In Luke chapter 3, Luke does something that is very different, very interesting. Luke uh, presents us with a genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. It's at the very end of chapter 3. Now, what's unusual about this is that Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew kind of makes sense. He begins his whole gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. He starts there. But Luke waits a little bit into the, the, his gospel to share the genealogy of Jesus. And then on top of that, he works in reverse order. You see, most ge- genealogies do what? They begin in the, um, the past and work toward the present, right? But Luke drafts his genealogy or presents it differently. Luke begins in the present but works toward the past. And there's a reason for this. Guess what comes immediately after the genealogy of Jesus in Luke's gospel? The temptation scene, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And before Luke begins that temptation narrative, here's the very last line of the genealogy. The son of Adam, the son of God. And so what is fresh on our minds when we go to read the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4? Adam. Who's Adam? Adam takes us back to the beginning of the biblical story. Adam was a failure. Adam was the first one to give into temptation. What Luke is doing for us is he is presenting Jesus as the second Adam. And guess what? This Adam does not fail. This Adam does not give in to temptation. This Adam resists the enticing words of the evil one. Jesus is our defender. And so I want to say this in closing. If you are here this morning and you are overwhelmed with guilt and shame, because of your failures when it comes to temptation. Connect to Jesus by faith. Connect yourself to the one who did not fail on your behalf, the one who passed the test on your behalf. This is the beauty of the Christian faith, that even though we have failed, even though we continue to be failures in so many ways, and even though we continue to give into all sorts of temptations, through faith in Jesus, through being connected in Jesus, we get Jesus' righteousness. 
The fact that he passed the temptations of life get applied to us. Connect yourself to him. And lastly, as you think about the moments and crises of temptation in your life, remember Jesus. You see, through faith in Jesus, you are genuinely, authentically connected to him. You are in union with Jesus, so much so that if what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. You are now named by Jesus. Your love and intimacy is found in Jesus. And guess what? Because Jesus passed the tests of temptation, you too, through his power and through his strength, as crazy as it sounds, it's not because of your strength and power, but it's because of you being connected through union with Jesus, you too can pass the tests of temptation. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you, we worship you, we love you for being the one who passed the tests of temptations on our behalf. Connect us to you. Give us faith. And I pray that we would become a wise people, a people who love your word, who apply your word, who desire to flourish and live um, in greater alignment with shalom. Make us obedient, not for arbitrary reasons, but out of love for you in response to the love that you have for us. Make us into a wise people who make wise decisions. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.